Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. Jay's Jackson Talk Plus or something like that. I, did, I should have workshopped that better. Uh, what a night for Jay Jackson. Smiles are always in style, as Jay Jackson is is fond of saying. Uh, what a performance from him last night. If you missed it, Jay's win 6-3 to three in 11 innings. The fact that it got to an 11th, not solely due to Jay Jackson, but he pitched a ninth inning and a 10th inning. Those are spots in tie games that are extremely high leverage anyway. We can look at the numbers and the win probabilities and things like that. But on the road against the Dodgers, Chavez Ravine, and you go bets Freeman Smith in the ninth inning and you sit them down. And then in the 10th, it's not like the Dodgers lineup gets much easier. You go Muncie Hayward Taylor around an intentional walk for David Peralta. Jay Jackson, absolute nails ninth and 10th inning to keep the Jays in it long enough for, and I promise this is the truth. Dalton Varsho to come through with a big hit in the top of the 11th, uh, hitting a two run double on a line to right field, part of a three run inning. Jordan Romano comes in and around some minor concern about his back uh, locks it down three up, three down, just a, a mound visit in between. So the Jays win six, three type of game. They've lost a, a fair number of lately. They certainly won a game just like that on, on Sunday against the Mariners, but they dropped a couple tight ones to the Padres dropped a couple tight ones to the Mariners. They had struggled mightily throughout that game, hitting in big situations with runners in scoring position. Very, very nice to see that come through. Very nice to see Jay Jackson lead a bullpen that needed six innings and has been pretty heavily worked over the last week or so. Uh, Jay's come through that one. Okay, let's break it down. Let's look ahead to, look, last night's game was fun, but let's be honest, we are one week out from the trade, that one week and eight hours out from the trade deadline. We're going to mix in some trade talk as well. We're going to look at some of the decisions John Schneider's made recently. And hey, what would those decisions look like if someone else was in that roster spot to help us break all of that down? It's Sportsnet producer Chris Black at Down to Black on Twitter. He's put up Twitter video and stat threads as he's like entering the room <laughs> here, uh, firing on all cylinders this morning, despite mm. the West Coast game. How you doing, buddy? Not firing on all cylinders. The kids don't care if you stay up until 1.30 or whatever it was to watch a West Coast game, but that was a lot of fun. What you kind of described it a little bit, but like one of the coolest parts about games like that as a fan is when you're almost resigned to the fact that you're going, that the Jays are going to lose that oh, yeah. game. And when it's Jackson runner on second top of the order, like you're, you're just kind of resigned. It's like, Oh, we'll try and get them tomorrow. And to just, it feels like there haven't been many games like that this year with the Jays where they pulled a win out of a loss. And so just experiencing that was cool last night for sure. Four for 20 for the game with runners in scoring position until that Dalton Varsho hit. Uh, I believe they were three for 16 because Bo's RBI came on a walk. So not a hit with runners in scoring position technically. And then they had the bases loaded with nobody out still after all that and went one, two, three, uh, Kiermaier, Springer, Guerrero. So not great numbers hitting with runners in scoring position uh, in general for that game. And I think, look, I don't want to put words in everyone's mouth, but an inning where you have have a runner on base early and nobody out and you go Dalton Varsho strikeout Alejandro Kirk ground to do a double play. It felt like the worst replays of the Seattle series. It felt like the worst replays of the San Diego series. It did not feel very good. So I agree with you that it certainly felt like a game where ah, I could turn this on, turn this off and see how they, how they blew it in the morning, but they didn't. Um, are you a believer in, and we have to be 
careful of biting on this pump fake again. As uh, as someone on Jay's Twitter has pointed out, we do this every time Dalton Varsho has a big hit the last month or two. Are you a believer in the big exhale? The, you come through in a huge spot. You've been pressing so much. Maybe now you can just let go a little bit. Uh, it's a maybe. Uh, okay. That's like... The swings, were bad. Yeah, the swings were bad early in the game. Um, but also, like, last night was a classic example when we're talking Varsho of why you don't make giant declarations in-game on social media about players or, or, like, it can look bad in baseball. And guess what? There's another moment potentially coming, you know, one more trip through the order. And it's cool that he got that moment. It was cool seeing, I thought, the broadcast showed some great replays of the bench reaction. I thought they showed a really cool moment when Varsho ran off to get his glove at the end of the inning and you saw, you can tell the team, you can tell his teammates care about that guy, want to see him succeed. That's not different than most other players. I get that, but it just, it seems like he's put in the work without, I'm not on the inside. It seems like he's put in the work. I don't know if it's going to turn around this season. It probably won't. But again, like that is why you have him in the lineup because he is going to give you all the other stuff and he could still come through in those moments. So I'm not I'm not a big believer in you need to take him to the bench. I'm not a believer in anything definitely more drastic than that. I just he's a good player. He's one of your guys. It's good to see him come through last night. It had been quite a stretch. A 348 OPS over the 25 games he'd appeared in uh leading into that one. And that's again, I, I did not say OBP or slugging. <laughs> I said OPS. You you add those he had not uh he actually had the the fun thing of the slugging percentage being below the OBP during that stretch. That's how, how few extra base hits you're getting. Um, it was, he was going through it in a big way. And I'm curious because had he not come through in that spot, I think something we would have been talking about today and something we could talk about anyway is where is the bar? Because he does bring a lot of very good defense. And I know there are, you know, outs above average, maybe doesn't love his left field play, but I I'm of the mind. If it loves your center field play, I'm just fine with you in left field over a larger sample. Um, and the the base running is solid yesterday aside. Yep. Where is the bar for, you know, how how low can that bat get where you're still basically an everyday player because you do bring enough extras? Uh, not much lower than where it's at. Um, you know, I think definitely when the Jays talk about looking for another bat, you know, that bat, those at-bats will come at the expense, at least partially, Varsho. Whether that's because you acquire an outfielder and Varsho starting there a little less often, or if it's an infielder, Whit Merrifield plays a larger share of left. Yeah. So I, I think like that's what he's up against. That's what he's facing. Um, last night will go, you know, uh, maybe not a long way, but it'll help in terms of getting him more at bats. But yeah, I just feel like it, it's not a, it's not a different, you know, it's not different from something we've heard in the past, but it's just, he's got wiggle room. And the fact that he can go this low on a cold stretch and still be in there every day. Um, speaks to the other things that he does. But, you know, I I really like that he had a chance to come, th- like, and did come through in that big moment because, yeah, the conversations <laughs> would have been quite different if it was another kind of, if they failed in that situ- situation and lost the game. And look, the conversations shouldn't change too, too much. Like you said, it's one game. There were some bad swings in that one. There was the base running error after uh, a fielder's choice where he probably shouldn't have been on base anyway. Uh, I don't know that that was the the correct call watching it back. Um, and, you know, I, I think 
I think even Dalton Varsho would understand that this is a team that wants to make the playoffs. And if they add a piece who happens to eat some at bats from him, that's fine. Um, you know, Kevin Kiermeyer is a guy who his bat has cooled off a little bit. You want that glove in there all the time, but two lefties in the outfield every day against opposing lefties, you start to see pretty quickly why there might be a lean toward a right-handed hitter specifically. You know, I think, if Cody Bellinger's coming in that door, you don't really worry about the handedness as much. But once you start getting into the guys who are going to be part-time players, um, you and I have kicked around a little bit before the 5% rule. Like, you'll, you'll take a guy 5% worse yeah, to exactly. who who can maximize the versatility and flexibility and things like that. Um, where are you in terms of that lean between lefty-righty or even positionally, given what's gone on with Varsho and, and to a lesser but not zero extent, Kirk, who, you know, on paper heading into this year was going to eat the lion's share of the DH days against lefties. Well, Kirk, just quickly, I just, I really like what I've seen from him in the last week or so. Not only hitting, but even just the way he's managed this staff. I thought he was, he had some really cool moments. If you watch that game, he was emphatic back there in terms of targets, in terms of asking, telling pitchers where he wanted to see the ball. So I wanted to ask you about that, and I don't, this is maybe, you know, something you and I got to wait until Joe Siddle's back off the road to pick his brain on, but there were a couple of times, and apologies to radio listeners because I'm going to do something visual here. There were a couple of times where the point was at a spot in the zone and then the setup was somewhere else. So um, there were two, I think, with with Genesis Cabrera um, and, and maybe there was someone, someone else later in the game. I forget which plate appearance it was. But as Kirk's setting up, he's got his throwing hand pointing at a spot, say low and in, and then he sets up high middle. And I'm curious as to what you think that it is. Is it a, you know, kind of the modern version of disguising your signs with a runner on second base? Is he doing something else with that setting up? What would your theory be before we, you know, get to ask a, a Joe or Caleb about it? Uh, there's one, to me, it's one of two things. Either it's a deke or a decoy, whatever you want to call it, of where he's saying, give me a breaking ball down in the zone and then getting something up. Or... His glove, when he's expecting a breaking ball down, starts somewhere in the middle of the zone, expecting expecting it to move down, mm. which it's kind of the opposite of the way these guys all receive fastballs now, where if they're expecting a fastball bottom of the zone or expecting a pitch low in the zone, um, they'll start really low and bring it up, like start almost near the ground mm -hmm. and bring it up. So it could be a bit of that, like where he's expecting to go with the glove or it might be a deke. And that can go two ways with the, in terms of where you want your glove to start for the purposes of framing. And obviously if Alejandro Kirk is doing something for the purposes of framing, uh, let's all follow that and, and do it because he is again this year, one of the top 10, I think framers in, in all of baseball, but you see, you know, that, that can cut two ways. And I've talked to Caleb Joseph about this before. He, he was talking to me about when, um, I forget which stop it was, but one of his stops, maybe Arizona, they they had him change how he was setting up. And what it made for was a noisier frame where you're, because of how you're, I think he went down to one, the one knee setup for a little while and he was noisy coming across to get a pitch. And an umpire told him at one point, like, if you're that noisy, like it, it even if it's not, it gives the impression of showing the ump up or trying to steal one. And I actually thought Cal Raleigh on the weekend, who is right there with Kirk among the best framers in baseball was really noisy relative to what we see from, from Alejandro Kirk. So I, I wonder, you know, I, I'm sure there are umpire tendencies and things like that, that the Jays look at. Um, but that's something that whether through Joe and Caleb or even, you know, down at the park this weekend, if I grab a moment with Kirk or whatever, maybe they won't give it away because that's state secrets, but it's interesting to see. Yeah, no, he's a lot of guys look loud compared to him. Like mm -hmm. he's really, really good. And what stands out to me recently is 
just that. Like, he's always been quiet behind the plate and really subdued. That's a bit of his personality. But what I've liked is just, yeah, like managing the staff a little bit, just working really well. He's now defensive run saved. He leads all American League catchers. Like, as crazy as this sounds, and he's already been worth more defensively in defensive run saves than last year. And yep. last year was all framing, framing, framing. This year, he's become one of the best blockers yep. as well. The run game still, I don't know. You can, I don't think he's ever going to look like, you know, an elite no. gunner back there. But, but can the, be average. And the framing and blocking combination is is pretty terrific. Yeah, like we need to wrap our heads around as Jays fans. Like he's going to be a contender. It doesn't, those numbers don't guarantee anything. But he's going to be a contender for a gold glove. And I think Which like. Which is wild yeah, given like where so, we were two years ago. Well, exactly, right? And it, and it's wild even for the way that a lot of fans, more casual fans, would, would see him and view him. But, you know, the Jays have, they could win or they'll be in contention for at least four gold gloves this year. And I would say almost. I guarantee, but they have a really good shot of winning three. So center field, left field, third base catcher of the Correct. four you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think he's been really, really good. And that activity, you've seen it at the plate too. Like I, I just feel like he's whatever it is, whether uh, he's feeling stronger. I don't know what it is. Haven't spoken to him, but he looks different recently and he looks better. And that could be a huge like game changer for the Jays over the last month or two of the year. And the thing is with Kirk is like, un- unlike, I mean, Varsho can get there a little bit because the defense and the base running are, are still important. And he's going to see days in center field and things like that. But the offensive bar, when you're a catcher, if you're a good defensive catcher, like Martin Maldonado has a world series ring and was, has been playing every day and can't hit a lick. Like you don't have to be great with the bat to provide a lot of value at the catcher position. Now the Jays have been, you know, pretty blessed the last little while where Kirk has, as he's improved defensively, been really good at the plate. Danny Jansen, who is also very good defensively and the pitcher, you know, we hear great things about his game calling and things like that is also a good hitter. So, um, you know, our bars there, I, I guess where the issue comes in is, well, Kevin Kiermaier cools off Dalton Varsho's in a big slump and Alejandro Kirk's not hitting particularly well. That's when you start to see, you know, maybe it's not fair to Kirk to isolate his struggle, but you start to see the, the kind of snowball or additive effect of that. Um, with respect to Kirk, just to close out the Kirk thought, um, him, being used against Sacedo with the bases loaded on the weekend. Were you okay with that? John Schneider's explanation afterward was not the type of explanation that I think would, would generally sit well with this segment, which is he's a dude for us. Um, what, what did you make of that one high ground ball, slow runner at the plate against one of the premier ground ball guys uh, on the mound? I just think they were looking to get him going. Okay. And they've seen, they've seen the same things I've seen of late where it felt like some momentum was building and it's yeah, go to your, go to your all-star, go to your silver slugger. Um, the other thing is like, I mean, you could, who would, I guess the question is like, what Luke were the, Lowe. yeah, like, and that's a tough, I get it. I understand the numbers. Um, but I just, that's a tough, that's a tough move to pull off in a room. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and I get it. I understand the logic, but like, you got a guy on the bench who's your who's a silver slugger last year, and I understand the struggles. I also don't I, I don't know these numbers, but um, obviously he's a faster runner. But a righty up the dish, almost some like he's still a double play candidate. Obviously mm-hmm. the, the amount that Kirk's hit this year are higher, but I, I just I didn't mind it as much as the rest of Blue Jays Twitterati probably. I did not like it. I was on the yep. I was on the call and was like, huh. <laughs> 
Huh. All right. I this like is it. not the move that I that I expected uh, to see the there. Before the double play was hit. You were Before the double play was Perfect. hit. I did not Perfect. I did not super love uh, that decision. And, um, you know, Luplo is a guy that obviously we have just like so many just tiny samples on. Like if you want to go ba- like he has a 100 percent ground ball right this year. <laughs> so um, that that's the time ty- the kind of chopped up samples we're talking about. It's also a weird spot to put a guy at the 26 man. And now I, I guess what the important thing to flow from this, though, is that decision in the same spot a month from now, if they've upgraded the bench, you have to be willing to go away from a Kirk or an Espinal, right? Yeah, if you if you improve that bench, but that's like that's one of their big ifs. Like that's that's what they're trying to do over the next week. Buddy, they so. gotta they gotta improve one of those spots at least. I would I would think they will, but and I, I assume you will talk about it at some point in the next week. We have so. been I've got a, a spreadsheet here ready with <laughs> uh so we got I put out a call for trade target suggestions yesterday that we could look at and we got fifty three. Um so they're all in a spreadsheet now, the contract details, the key stats, things like that. We got a we got a whole bunch of guys. Who was the at. most often cited? Shohei. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um good no job, uh, good job crowdsource. Yes. Um I, I don't I don't know. I didn't keep account of of who the most common one was. I, I think probably because of yesterday's rumors tim anderson was high up there you are uh on on the pitching side um you know again because of the news yesterday david bednar came up jordan montgomery is probably the most popular starting pitching name uh you kind of cringe there at tim anderson you want to do a tim anderson moment here uh sure yeah i uh listen it depends on what else comes up Mm -hmm. but to me when i looked at tim anderson's savant page fan page you know, looked at some clips. Look, what stood out to me was the way it reminded me of what I saw when I looked into Carlos Correa over the last couple mm. of years, where just not just the hitting numbers, but like measurable declining skills in lots of different places. And to me, a guy who's 30, that's a red flag. Now, paying Carlos Correa 10 years, $300 million versus a rental on Tim Anderson. He's got a team option for next year, but the buyout's only $1 million. So you're looking at potentially a a straight rental. So I guess, and this is very, very difficult to wrap my head around because I was such a big Tim Anderson guy at the peak, right? Like multiple seasons threatening 2020, a batting title in there. And now I'm looking at, well, he would upgrade the Santiago Espinal spot. He's a better defender at shortstop than Espinal. He's a better base runner. If that's what you're using that spot for, that feels like a really weird spot to put Tim Anderson in and headed into free agency. Maybe he wouldn't be super thrilled about that. Um, but yeah, maybe we have to change what the, you know, Tim Anderson's not coming in every day to take Whit Merrifield's job and push him to the bench. It nope. would be to upgrade your bench, which is a, a weird thing to wrap your head around for a guy that, you know, we thought was on maybe like a star trajectory for a while. Yeah, like I just to me, like what you said there, when you said he's a better he's a better fielder than Espinal and he's a better base runner than Espinal, like maybe and probably, but probably only like marginally now. I, which, I feel very confident about the base running part yes, of that. But he's but the other part is he's a lot slower than he used to be even a year or two ago. Like that's like instincts, I don't know. I don't watch enough, yeah. but like all I know is that quantifiably, he's like much, much slower than he was a few years ago. So I, it's just, I like what he could do. I would love it if he was a guy. Yeah. Like if that's a guy you're putting on your bench, I still trust the, the guy can hit, but, and he's been, one thing I did notice is he's been kind of unlucky that there've been like, he's, 
He's hit a bunch of liners at the center field. He's also he's hit lefties pretty well. He's got 13 hits over his last nine games. There's there are some indicators that maybe better days are ahead. Yep, but fans would need to wrap their head around like this is another, this is Bo Bichette's plate profile without the like massive production of Bo Bichette. There's not going to be walks. There's going to be a lot of chase, and it's you know he's not Bo Bichette anymore. When he was hitting 320 and winning batting titles, yeah. You're okay with that profile, but if you're hitting 250 or 260, it's a little less, um, you know, digestible. So you mentioned Bobachet. Let's get into it. He gets an off day yesterday, which is extremely rare. It's not an injury thing. It's kind of a seems like a clear your head. And we we have 17 and 17 coming up. We'd like to get everyone a day down. It ends up he pinch hits. He takes an RBI walk in extra innings, um, which is the a hilarious outcome given why he was getting the day off in the first place, which is, well, he's back to expanding a lot. And maybe, you know, I, I thought against Seattle until Sunday, I thought the Friday, Saturday, he was having pretty good plate appearances. He was working long counts. He had that like nine or 10 pitch battle against Miller. Um, he was making guys work and the results were there. Sunday was a bit of a, I'm going to go up and hack. Um, where are you at with the, I don't want to say, slump necessarily for Bobachet because like this slump for him is like I don't know his OBS is like 680 over the last the stretch of time we're talking about here it's not a Varsho slump it's just uh you know a, a step down from where he was yeah uh, a couple things on Bo one is like I think the colder stretch at least comparatively speaking is longer than most people think I think most people think it's been a week or two of kind of poor play where it's more like 40 games of decreased production now again you hit the nail on the head when we talk about Bo Bichette, when you and I talk about Vladimir Guerrero, we are, the term I always use, grading these guys on the curve. We're comparing them to their peak production or their, you know, their baseline production. So, yeah, a 700, like a sub 700 OPS over the last 40 games or so. Um, so it's longer than people think. But, again, that's still better than if at least a handful of other Blue Jays. Um, to me, with Bo... The swing decisions are always the, um, they're like the the canary in the coal mine thing with him. You know what I mean? Like, even when he was still racking up hits, we saw the swing decisions get, get worse. And, you know, he was still racking up hits, but, like, that's always, like, tells you when either something good or bad is coming with Bo. So I thought, like, that's the thing. And so to see him take a walk, even, like, the first pitch take, he took that first pitch in a way that suggested, I know they're not giving me a pitch over the heart of the plate. Like, I'm going up taking. I love that. And the other thing is, like, and I talked about it, I think, yesterday on social, is you see more and more teams doing the Astros approach with him. Fastball's up and away. It seems mm -hmm. as if... Seattle jammed him in a lot, too. A little bit. The, it, it was, it was kind pitcher. of a, a back and forth of, yeah. uh, you know, Miller was really setting him up outside and then come trying to come back inside with his hardest fastball. Yeah. A guy who throws four different fastballs. Yeah, I think it depends on the pitcher, but it's just, it's definitely been a, a spot where teams can find some success against him. They can find outs. And, like, I think good velo away with Bo's approach of where he wants to be and how he wants to hit the ball, a good fastball on the outside corner, he's going to foul that off a lot more mm -hmm. as opposed to those inside fastballs that he was filleting into right field early in the year. I believe he led the league in foul balls last year. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a common both thing. Yeah, and some, some of that is, hey, you're a really good two-strike hitter, right? You can, defend, you can defend with two strikes and you don't give away a lot of strikeouts and stuff like that. But yeah, there is, a, you know, that willingness to poke 
poke something on the outer third and wait for a mistake over the way. Yeah, it cuts both ways. You're going to, you get, you get tired by the end of those plate appearances, I think. Yeah, I just, I, I think he's going to come out of it. It's not something that I'm concerned about, but I think it just warranted, you know, it, it warranted taking a look at his numbers and seeing what was going on. And it just, it seems as if you look at the July heat map for where teams are throwing them fastballs, there's a, you know, a red spot in that upper right quadrant kind of up and away from him. Mm -hmm. So just something to keep an eye on. And the walk was very, very encouraging for sure. Yeah. And the other, the one other thing about that fastball location is look, we know that Bo forever has been an all fields guy, but if you're looking, you know, there's a situation where you want to pull something for power, pull something in the air. That's the probably the hardest spot to, to pull, uh, you know, the, the high velocity on the, on the outer side. Yeah, you got to be way ahead with Bo. It's funny when you watch his hip profile and look at the pitch, look at the pitches that he drives, the pitches he drives and pulls are almost always breaking balls. Mm-hmm. Something that he's just catching out front fastballs. He's catching late and driving, to right center, right field. It's a hard approach to do. It's been a much-discussed strategy uh, for the Blue Jays, but it's something that he does really well. I'm not sure how many other guys can do it. Vladdy certainly can, but it's a it's a hard approach to pull off, but Bo does it really, really well. So the walk in that game, uh, a positive indicator and certainly a nice step for a, a couple other positives in that game. Um, I talked about Jay Jackson in, in kind of my open here. Uh, smiles are always in style, Chris, but Jen, uh, Henesis Cabrera was someone that I got to get used to the, the, the soft G there. Henesis Cabrera, uh, someone that you were encouraged with. I, I did a little spiel on him on Blue Jay Central on Friday, why I like the fastball slider combination. What did you see from him last night that leads you to, you know, we're not talking about, hey, he's going to take save opportunities from Jordan Romano but an upgrade on that last bullpen spot? Uh, Stuff, just, I mean, that's the top line thing. Just seeing the fastball, seeing the breaking ball, it has life. But to me, it was their track record of success, of kind of getting lefties, improving the results of lefties that come in. Uh, It's Robbie Ray, it's Yusei Kikuchi. We're not suggesting there's going to be a Robbie Ray turnaround coming. But the one that really stands out to me was Tim Mazin. A few years ago, Meza was a 20-something with an ERA above four, and he threw a four-seamer, a sinker, a slider, and I think that was it. Um, What he did in the last few years was he got rid of the four-seamer. He became exclusively sinker and threw it a lot. Great life, keeping the ball on the ground, limiting damage. And last, it's one game, so who knows? Might just be pure randomness, pure coincidence, but last night... Cabrera shelled the four-seamer against lefties. Only threw, uh, I mean, he only threw six pitches against lefties, but four sinkers and two sliders. So is it something where they think they can pull a similar, did they see something in his sinker that made it seem Mesa-esque? Do they think they can pull the, pull off the same thing again? I don't know, but I really like the stuff. And I, and I just, again, like this isn't about can he be a huge guy for you? It's can he come on in like a, a fifth, a sixth, some kind like of like you did last night, yeah, and get some lefties out. And last night, great first step. And what that lets you do is, you know, Richards and Swanson, your righties who you trust against lefties, you get to save Richards for a higher leverage spot. Maybe now, the last week or so has not gone the best for Trevor <laughs> Richards, but that 
that happens. You're a relief pitcher. You're going to have, look, one guy gave up one run over six relief innings for your bullpen yesterday. You could be okay if one guy uh, does that every once in a while. But yeah, to upgrade that spot, to let you save Richards for a little later, to let you maybe shrink the workload of Eric Swanson from here because Swanson with that splitter is another guy you use uh, against lefties. I'll, I'll be interested to see what Cabrera's pitch mix looks like as we get uh, a bit more sample of him with the Jays here. Exactly. I think the one thing you worry about with a sinker, and, and there are different types of sinkers. Mesa gets away with this because his sinker, his sinker doesn't have a lot of that um, arm side comeback, um, but the sinkers that do tend to be heavy platoon split pitches because you're kind of breaking back into the bat path of, of a righty as a lefty. So we'll have to see, you know, do they have them just go with the four seamer instead against righty? So there's a little less movement. Uh, it'd be interesting to track that. Before I let you go here, Alec Manoa start on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I have dove in a lot. And I think, you know, even after that Detroit start, we're maybe a little more, not pessimistic, but cautious with the optimism. Cautiously optimistic. Yeah. Or I, I don't even, wouldn't even say cautiously <laughs> optimistic because I, I have not been optimistic. I have just been cautious, I think. Um, what you saw in that one, particularly with the slider, which you and I kind of agreed with, was the the big, again, canary in the coal mine or whatever. Um, did you like Sunday's start as a small step forward? For yes Manoa? and no. Uh, the results on the slider, good. Just like the, just like Detroit. Ten swing and miss. Ten swing and miss. Got to be happy with that. That's what we kind of needed to see. We saw he could get back in the zone against Detroit. We still want to see some higher-end stuff. We did, but I think the big takeaway for fans with Manoa to keep in mind is Seattle profiles a lot maybe not a lot, profiles closer to Detroit than they do San Diego in terms of chase, contact, in terms of how often they chase righty sliders. So, like, the name and the team makes you think they're a better team, but, like, their hitting is actually closer to Detroit. So that's just something to keep in mind. Although Um, they did have a lot of lefties in the lineup, something Detroit couldn't do to to punish them. So he at least had to get through that tough lefty-heavy part of the order twice. Yeah, for sure. So, like, definitely stuff to build on. I am cautiously optimistic. Okay. Uh, But I think, like, I think this is kind of what we're going to see. Like, I did, from what we've seen so far, he is going to – I think he's going to find a spot in the rotation, but it, there's going to be inconsistency because that's what you get from a three, four, or five guy, and that's kind of what he is for the moment. Yeah, for the moment. And, and hey, maybe even a six guy as we uh, keep an eye on Hyunjin Ryu's uh, return and what the game plan is there. He's not going to start in this Angel series, uh, by the way. They're going to have him deload, which is uh, this week's version of appropriately comfortable as we continue to come up with new weird terms for things. He's going to deload this week. I will talk to Ben Nicholson Smith about this at 11. I think that's more of a why clear 40 man spot right now when you have five starters and the deadline's about to be here and maybe that sorts itself out at the deadline. Um, But Hyunjin Ryu is coming back at some point, which is exciting. For sure. I'm to me, what I really think if it were me lining up the rotation, I think it has a lot to do with, and obviously some things can change over the deadline, but to me, they've got seven games over the next month against Baltimore. To me, those are the biggest games on the calendar, obviously. And to me, it's about whatever you do, are we doing it in a way that lines up that lines up Gossman, Barrios, Bassett? Though if you can get six of those seven games coming with those guys pitching. So whatever it feels like if I were if I were lining up my rotation, I'd be making sure that when you're fitting in the pieces, you're doing it to maximize your rotation 
in those seven games. The risk with that, though, is if you're trying to stack those three against Baltimore, that means the other three are stacked together somewhere else, and your bullpen is already going to be a man short if you're running a six-man. Jay Jackson, I'm sorry. Hennessy's Cabrera, I'm sorry. You guys both look great, but you got options. You're going to be doing the up-down <laughs> if uh, if this team goes to a six-man rotation at one point. Chris Black, thanks for taking the time out this morning, man. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you. I know you're, you're almost in tennis season here, almost. but I think we'll probably get you for deadline sure. week next week. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. Okay. Yep, 100%. We'll talk to you then. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Levi Weaver of the Wind Up Newsletter at The Athletic. We're going to uh, take a look around Major League Baseball here exactly one week out from the trade deadline. Second hour, we'll have Ben Nicholson-Smith on with us from L.A. and also from L.A., uh, Fabian Ardaya from The Athletic on the Dodgers side of things. We'll also sprinkle in, yeah, you guys sent me over 50 trade targets uh, yesterday. We'll, we'll keep looking at some of those throughout the show. As Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jay's Talk Plus, Blake Murphy. Um, all right. Uh, we're joined now by, uh, he writes the wind-up newsletter at The Athletic in your inbox or at The Athletic every single day. It's Levi Weaver, 3 2 Ephus on whatever we're on Twitter these days. Levi, got to start off. Uh, how was the uh, Barbie Oppenheimer double dip on the weekend? Oh, it was great. Uh, I, I have a photo of me somewhere, you know, jumping in the Barbie box between the two, but I just come out of Oppenheimer, so you've got like this, you know, just sugar sweet box and she's having the best day ever and i'm just standing there with my head in my hands like oh dear oh no what have we done to humanity uh it was good both both movies were very good for obviously different reasons uh but yeah i i recommend if you can handle five plus hours in a theater it's a it's a good little cultural experience you could do worse as far as trends go she's having the best day ever because she's unaware of what's happening in the real world uh, barbie world does not have nuclear war and things like that apparently you also did the i, yeah, I saw you post no yeah, that we know of. Yeah, who knows? The the we'll, we'll see if there's a sequel and, and, you know, not to give anything away about the movie, but we'll see if some of the, the bad actors in the, the Barbie film uh, take a step up yeah. next time out. You also, I, I saw you posted you wore a Phoebe Bridger shirt, which I think, I think Boy Genius, we can all agree, like, is the, the act that best threads the needle between Barbie and Oppenheimer? Yeah. Yeah, that that's... Uh, uh, totally. I mean, my... Yeah, the the Phoebe Bridgers shirt that I have is the one that has lyrics from like uh, I, I know the end or whatever that song is called, or yeah. you know basically driving out to the end of society. But then you know it's Phoebe Bridgers, so I figured that was a good middle ground to uh, try to celebrate both without really just making a fool of myself. I think that you threaded that needle perfectly, Levi. Uh, all right, so that's uh, I know the end, uh, you know, society-wise and end of the world. Uh, we will be at the end of trade deadline season one week from now. Will we be at the end of Shohei Otani's tenure as a member of the Los Angeles Angels? Or are we waiting for the Shohei Otani free agent spectacular next winter? I don't, man, I don't know. The Angels have been winning some games lately, which feels a lot like false hope to me, um, which is incredibly on brand for that organization. Oh, yeah. Um, the it, the logical thing to do would be to trade him. Like, that is, he's not 
seems pretty clear for a guy who like doesn't really say anything in the media ever for him to go, yeah, it sucks to lose. <laughs> and like, well, what have you done for your entire tenure in an Angels uniform? Lose. Like, he doesn't want to come back. It doesn't seem like. So he's going to leave. They should trade him. They should get whatever they can get, which should be quite a lot, actually. Like, it would be a good package to get in return. Um, but they're not going to do it if they're within sniffing distance of a playoff spot because they haven't been to the playoffs so long. For contrast, you look at the Red Sox, and the Red Sox are like closer to a wild card spot than the Angels, and they're basically just like, eh, we might sell anyway, like wild card. The, eh, who who cares about a wild card? We don't want that. <laughs> and um, yeah, they should. But the thing is, you know, players of that stature don't get traded by the general managers. Those guys require like ownership and involvement and Artie Moreno can be relied on for one thing. And that is to not ever do the logical thing <laughs> that is best for the organization. So I, so I don't think they're going to trade him. Like, I think he's going to stay in an angels uniform and leave in free agency. And they're going to get like a, the 85th draft pick of, uh, of next year's draft. And that guy will always and forever have attached to his name like, oh, you're the guy that's supposed to replace Shohei Otani. Good luck. Yeah, uh, good luck indeed. The qualifying offer system not set up for guys of Shohei Otani's ilk. So that's the will it or won't it happen. Um, Levi, let's play out a scenario. And I'm, I know you guys have kind of done some Shohei stuff in the wind-up newsletter the last little bit. Uh, let's play out the scenario where Artie Moreno says, Today, Levi, look, man, I, I'm trading him, and I want to know what you think the most fun outcome or, or the coolest outcome for all of baseball is. Where would you, Levi, pick for Shohei Otani to land? Keeping in mind, you were on a Toronto radio station, and, uh, you know, I, I consider you a friend. I would like this answer to be Toronto. I don't think it will be. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, Toronto would be fun. Like Toronto would be great fun, um, but I'm sorry. The Cincinnati Reds, final answer. Can you imagine Shohei oh. Otani, Ellie De La Cruz, Joey Votto? There you go. There's my Canada connection. Joey Votto, all on the same. That would be the most fun in team in baseball immediately. 100%. It already I would is. I'm a Reds fan. Yeah, I would become a Reds fan instantly, and I would have to like recuse myself from writing about the Reds because <laughs> I would be wearing a Reds jersey and a Reds hat and like a pennant cheering go Reds every day if he was traded to Cincinnati. Yeah, I don't know that Jonathan India is a, enough of a starter for that package to to get uh, to get going there. Your your brother Luke Weaver there, you could throw him in. I, I don't know. I don't know if they have uh, if they have enough um, in terms of. Uh, look, I think we can all agree the Cincinnati Reds probably don't have the chips and aren't at a spot to push them in yet anyway. Um, no, from no. from the class of teams that um, could potentially, you know, we've even heard recently, hey, the Orioles and the Diamondbacks have checked in a little bit, teams who maybe we don't associate as typical buyers. Is, is there anyone in the kind of, let's say there's a 5% chance tier that, that you really like the idea of Shohei Otani landing? Uh, the Orioles are interesting. Like, mm -hmm. would they trade Jordan Westerberg? Like, he could be an, a Jonathan India replacement, I guess. Mm. Um, I think the Orioles are really interesting. The Diamondbacks have a good system. This is going to make me sound like a huge homer because I live in Dallas, but I think the Rangers have a good farm system. I don't know if they're willing to mortgage it for a rental on Otani, but they've got quite a few. Because here's what the Angels, I think, and as best I can gather from the vibes, uh, I think they're going to want a package of guys that are pretty close to being big league ready, mm -hmm. you know, guys that can help them win next year. Um, the Rangers have quite a few guys in double A AA and triple A that are pretty good prospects. Like they've done a good job of boosting their system over the last few years. So I, I think they would be 
as far as like what would be a good matchup, uh, the Rangers could be that. I don't know if the Angels are going to want to trade him in division, even mm-hmm. though they, you know, free agency is coming and he likely will not end up with the team that he's traded to next year. Um, I think the Dodgers, even though it's been said that <laughs> this is what I mean about Moreno not doing the logical thing. Who cares? Trade him to the Dodgers if that's the best package. But he's like, uh-uh, I'm not. Nah, my brother cannot. It's like. I will sell my baseball card, but not to my brother. Like I don't want him still in the house looking at me. Uh, I, he said he doesn't want to trade him to the Dodgers. So, but I think the Dodgers uh, have you know the, the sort of minor league system where they could they could line up as well. So those maybe I guess four teams are the ones on my radar that I would think could do it if they want to. It's a unique blend of like desperate to do really well in the playoffs because they need, well you know Dodgers are just you know a, a mega behemoth, but. With Arizona, Baltimore, and Texas, all three of them could use a good deep run into the playoffs. I haven't really done that in a while, and um, and have you know probably the minor league prospects to do it if they decide that it's worth the squeeze. With respect to to Baltimore, um, you know Michael Elias, their general manager, has been very very patient, has preached patience, didn't put much you know into the middle of the table this winter, even though Baltimore overperformed last year relative to their timeline and he looks smart for doing it despite not putting a ton of chips in the middle they lead the American League at 62 and 38 they're now two and a half up on Tampa um you know the fact that they've been so patient with this thing to this point I I think probably informs my expectations for them but given the openness of the American League given how good they look um do you think there's you know if you're Baltimore how much are you weighing the risk of well if you don't strike while all your young guys are inexpensive before this young core gets get their big extensions together like to me with the way the economics of baseball the way this is all set up now is kind of the best time for the Orioles to push a couple chips in and maybe take on some rentals or rentals plus one year types would you be in that mode if you were the Orioles absolutely things are going well for them the team is doing you know the the clubhouse chemistry is great the vibes are good like this is when you go for it and you show your fans like hey thanks for sitting through all those hundred lost seasons in the last little while we're going to reward that by going out and actually trying when it looks like who else in the American League like just looking through the the cast of of uh, potential contenders you know, AL West, the Rangers are good, but probably not great just yet. The Astros seem to be declining a little bit from last year. I think, still think they'll probably win the division and have good postseason experience, so they're probably a team you're looking to knock off. Nobody in the AL Central is scary. Really, the biggest competition is coming from within the division. The Rays have had a lot of injuries. They seem vulnerable right now. Are the Yankees and Red Sox and Blue Jays, like... Anyway, there's nobody that the Orioles look at and go, look, even if we get into the playoffs, we're not going to be able to beat X team. They could go to the World Series. And so you have to really push your table and, and go for it when you have that opportunity. Right now they need starting pitching. Uh, you know, Grayson Rodriguez has looked better since he's been back up in the big leagues since going to the minor leagues for a little while. Um, and that is why I think they're interesting for Otani if that blister issue is not going to be a big deal, if he's going to be able to – be a starting pitcher for them. They're adding both. Um, if if he's not the guy, then you know, go take a look at at um, Marcus Stroman or Lucas Giolito. Like they need, they they don't really have a scary top of the rotation starting pitcher right now. And I think that's the one thing that they're really lacking is that dude that they can put out on the mound and go. All right, we got this one at least. We know we we know we have a really good shot to win with this guy on the mound. And it well, isn't Kyle Gibson, but yeah, it's... he's not that guy. 
it's an interesting contrast to some of the teams they could run into. And let's say they don't win the, the division. You run into a wild card series. And I don't think any Blue Jays fan is overly, you know, like unreasonably optimistic about this team. But at least on the pitching matchup side, I think a lot of people would look at it and say, well, the Orioles are a better team. But look at the Jays top starters versus the Orioles top starters, especially as Tyler Wells comes back down to down to earth here and, and things like that. I'm curious as to your take on the Blue Jays here. Now, they sit in a wild card spot. They're six and a half back of Baltimore in the division. I think everyone can agree they've underperformed expectations uh, a little bit, but you also look at them and there's not, you know, one glaring spot that it, it, you know, even to hear Ross Atkins, their general manager, talk about it. It's like, yeah, we could add here. We could add here. We could add both of these things, but it's, it doesn't sound like they're going to be shopping in the high level item territory of the deadline what do you make of, of the blue jays position right now and where would you like to see them focus some of their uh, their deadline aggression yeah i mean i think probably another starting pitcher for them too and the reason is you got you know hunjin ruse coming back chad green's coming back alec manoa what is going on with him is he going to be last year's alec manoa or early this year's alec manoa but and I don't have a good sense of whether Atkins sees it this way or not, but like the way that I look at it is if you've got a shot to go get one of those top of the rotation guys and really solidify your ability to make a deep run in the playoffs, I think that's probably where I would focus the attention. And then, Hey, if Rue and green and Manoa are all like, you know, a three headed monster by the end of the season, that is a phenomenal bonus. Like then, then the blue Jays are a really scary team. Staff is going to be really nasty. Um, but I just don't know that I would rely on any of those three and be like, yeah, well, we know he's going to be really, really great. I don't think we know that. Um, and then as far as a bat goes, like the lineup is pretty deep and pretty good. There's not really one glaring, like you said, you know, glaring void. They've got good infield versatility, which I think really makes it the, the, number of guys that they could go for if they wanted to pick up a right-handed bench bat becomes broader because you don't need somebody that can play a particular position because all of your infielders can kind of play everywhere. Um, and interesting, like, he's got left. And I don't know if I'm the Blue Jays that I would really want to, like, do this experiment, but Nelson Cruz is a free agent mm. and would cost you nothing. I'd, I'd put him in the lineup for a week and be like, hey, let's see what you got left, you know? Go come play for a week. If you got nothing left, then we're going to cut you and, and get somebody else. Uh, but depending on what happens at the deadline, if they don't pick up a right-handed bat, if the, if the price is wrong and they just don't pick up a guy, uh, that might be an interesting guy to just, you know, bring him in and see what he can do for a week. Yeah, we've kicked that one around when he initially got DFA'd. And obviously, he's he's 43 years old at this point and wasn't sure. even hitting lefties well this year. But he's also a guy that, you know, he's one of the more well-respected veterans around baseball. Like, I, I don't think there is a huge cost to bringing him in and trying it out, especially when you don't use your 26th man as it is already. It's just uh, right. in, in case of emergency. I'm curious. So Nelson Cruz is obviously, you know, that's the available for free free agent pile. Shohei is the, you're not getting in that conversation with, where the Jays system is in that thick in between. Are there any, and this can be specific to the Jays or it can just be specific to the, to the deadline as a whole. Are there any targets out there that you really like that you think are maybe going a bit under the radar or could be kind of low cost additions where you'd be like, huh, I really, I really like that. That's a savvy pickup. That wasn't, you know, a a headline in the windup type of guy. Yeah, um, but a couple of them are pitchers. You know, like Rich Hill, I think, has got enough veteran experience. You kind of know what you're getting with him. He's not a top-of-the-rotation guy, but can give you some 
system rotation depth. Um, I think he would be an interesting pickup. Aaron Savali in Cleveland mm-hmm. has been, I think, better than a lot of people realize just because Cleveland has played like a team that wants to stay under the radar. <laughs> um, but, you know, one bat that I think might be of interest to people if the Red Sox do decide to sell is Adam Duvall. Had a really hot start to the season. Um, it had an injury, was out for a bit. But I think he's kind of one of those, you know, if you're looking for a bench bat, that you could do worse than Adam Duvall. So as far as those under the radar guys, you know, I think those are people I would look at. Maybe not quite so under the radar, but uh, I think his first name is pronounced Jamer Candelario. Uh, I've only ever seen it written because mm. I don't really watch a whole lot of Nationals games because who does? Um, I think it, you know, as far as an infielder that can you know add to that stable of guys uh, that you have in the infield, there he might be somebody that could be had for cheap-ish. Um, and then everybody else that I'm looking at is kind of a little higher up. Like, are the White Sox going to trade Tim Anderson? Is Tim Anderson going to be Tim Anderson when he gets to whatever team is next? Um, you know, Cody Bellinger, those guys like that. Yeah, the Tim Anderson question, we kicked it around the first segment here. Like, obviously, he has had uh, an irredeemably bad season at the plate. And who knows where his happiness would be if you picked him up strictly as a bench piece. And, you know, he's headed for, in all likelihood, free agency this offseason and, and everything like that. But I don't know. As far as Bilo kick the tires, like it, like if all the White Sox care about is getting out of the remaining money for him, then I don't know. I think you could do do worse at kind of the, the lower tiers of the deadline than Tim Anderson. I could do worse than having you on, Levi. I appreciate you taking the time out this morning, man. Keep up the great work with the Wind Up newsletter over at The Athletic. And uh, yeah, man, I, I wanted to get into a little bit of, you know, deep philosophical introspection about how every reliever is replaceable and every year it's a different crop of the exact same reliever and what that tells us about the world we live in. But uh, we're almost out of time for the segment so we'll have to save that for a a meditation a different time we'll we'll save the existentialism for next time all right man thanks so much levi weaver uh writer of the wind up newsletter at the athletic at three two ephus on twitter uh make sure to check out his work that wind up newsletter by the way has a, a daily input from ken rosenthal as well so if you're looking for some of your your insider bits here this last week ahead of the deadline. That is a good resource for that. Uh, Ken Rosenthal had a bit of a news and notes column go up yesterday as well. Within that, not not a ton of Jay's stuff. Notable, though, if you are looking at my mentions and the type of players that uh, listeners ha- have asked about, um, Lance Lynn has a limited no trade list and the Toronto Blue Jays are on it. So Lance Lynn would have to approve a trade to Toronto and the speculation is that that would probably require the Jays picking up his very expensive option for next year, which they probably wouldn't do. So even if they were in the market for Lance Lynn, that particular name is complicated. They could be in the market for a lot of different guys, though. Like I said, you threw out 53 different names at me yesterday. They're all in a spreadsheet now. Let's uh, take a break. Let's call Ben Nicholson-Smith bright and early in the morning on L.A. time, and let's just shoot 53 names at him and make him react to all of them. Ben Nicholson-Smith joins us from L.A. as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Blue Jays win last night 6-3 to three in 11 innings. Maybe an exhale game for Dalton Varsho. 
maybe not. It's, uh, you know, you're going to bite on that pump fake again. We'll see. It, it certainly felt like a good moment for him amid what's been a difficult month. Uh, less difficult month, but no less a big moment. Jay Jackson coming through with two terrific innings for the Blue Jays. This is a 35-year-old who has bounced around a ton of major league organizations, a ton of minor league organizations, has never been bad in the major leagues, just hasn't gotten consistent opportunities. He's, he's actually been pretty solid as far as relievers go. Every time he's gotten a window Well, now here for the Jays, he has pitched 14 innings. He has an area of 064. The only run he's allowed was the dramatic and controversial uh, Aaron judge look over to the dugout home run. That's it for the entire year. Uh, Jay Jackson has infinity years of control left contractually because of baseball's weird treatment of veteran free agents who bounce around. Um, what a moment for him. Ben Nicholson Smith was there. He's of course the MLB editor at sports at um, You'll see him on blue Jay central. You see him on Jay's talk plus all the time. Ben Nicholson Smith. It was your first time at Chavez ravine before we get into the specifics of the game, specifics of the trade deadline. How was your first Dodger stadium trip? You know what? Dodger Stadium's awesome. Uh, yeah, I think uh, lived up to the hype. Uh, it's just it's a really cool place, and uh, I, I'm sure some people listening have uh, have gone. I'm sure others have it on their list. And to anyone who has it on their list, I would say if you get the chance to go, definitely, uh, definitely go. It's a really cool spot. Well, is there room in the budget right now for you on the MLB Sportsnet.ca site? Fly me out there because I haven't been. It's one of the small handful <laughs> I haven't been to yet. Uh, let me. I don't know. I'll, I'll tuck in your carry on on the way back or something like that, Ben. Yeah, that sounds like a, a good strategy. I'm sure the border services agents won't have any issues <laughs> with that. So let's just let's make that the plan. That sounds great. Might also be a size issue with me trying to fit into any kind of uh, any kind of luggage. So your first time at Chavez Ravina, a few of the Blue Jays playing in their first non All Star game there. Jay Jackson comes into this monster spot, um, bottom of the ninth inning tie game. Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, Will Smith do up. Not only does he sit those three down in order, he then does a 10th inning where he sits Muncie Hayward and Taylor down an intentional walk in there, you know, because of the zombie runner on second and playing the strategy there. But basically he goes six up, six down against arguably the best lineup in baseball. Um, man, I, I know that relievers are random and guys have quick moments of success. We saw a good Matt Gage innings last year and things like that. Um, how surprising for you, though, when you see Jay Jackson go out there for the ninth and you see him go back out there for the 10th, good season to date aside, that's got to be one of the unlikelier performance, the performances the Jays will get this year. They really needed it. And I, I wasn't surprised to see him in the ninth because at that point you just need outs. But in the 10th, when they had those lefties coming up, I, I really was surprised. And I, I thought that that made a whole lot of sense as a spot for Tim Meza. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, what's going on here? Why aren't they going to Tim Meza? Um, as we found out after the game, when I asked John Schneider about it, he said that Meza was down. He just wasn't available. Neither was Eric Swanson. So at that point, you have to rely on someone. And so that ends up being Jay Jackson. And this is one of those times where in the course of a long season, you have to play the long game sometimes if you're the Blue Jays. You can't max out to win that game on a Monday night in Los Angeles, but they still were able to get it done with Jay Jackson stepping up in a big way and Dalton Varsho stepping up. I'm sure we'll get to that. But, you know, sometimes you need guys who are not your number one reliever or your number one bat in the lineup to come through and give you those big moments. 
That's uh, yeah, it, it, you're right. And he steps up. Henesis Cabrera steps up as well in that game with a good inning. Um, when you look at, you know, where this bullpen is right now, look, the unfortunate reality. And I, I really like Jay Jackson since Arden wrote about him in spring training. You know, that's a guy you're rooting for. Obviously a, a very nice, you know, social media presence, a nice presence in the, in the clubhouse and things like that. He has options. There's, there's going to be another point at this season where he's with the Buffalo Bisons. That's probably true of Henesis Cabrera as well. Um, when you think back to Ross Atkins talking last week about guys who have options being, um, you know, something they, they would prefer. And, and an area of flexibility. How much does this just hammer home the need for that and the need to have a little bit of, you know, whether it's the next Jay Jackson or Hennessy Cabrera or Nate Pearson, you know, someone who, especially if we're talking about a six man rotation for a little bit in the coming weeks, uh, the ability to go up down with guys like that. Um, I mean, how much is that a, a focus of you as we talk about deadline, a focus for you rather, as we talk about deadline additions and what this 40 man could look like come this time next week? Yeah, it's going to change a lot. I, I think that's that's pretty clear. Um, it certainly should change uh, a fair amount. Um, and part of that will be the bullpen. It's interesting. Like I think now that you have Pearson Jackson and Hennessy Cabrera, who all can be Optioned. I don't know that you necessarily need more relievers who can. Obviously, it's always preferable for, you know, every single player on your roster. The dream is they can all be optioned and, you know, they're, they're uh, completely at your disposal to do whatever you want with. But um, more realistically, you are going to have some guys who just stay up. And if the best pitcher out there, for example, let's say it's a David Robertson and okay, I mean, you can't option him, but he's a good pitcher, so you kind of work with that, you know? So I, I think it's a nice to have, um, but I think that in the case of someone like Cabrera, whose performance hasn't been great, although he was very good yesterday, his performance this season hasn't been great, you're not acquiring a, a fringe guy like that unless he has options. And I do wonder, you know, with the with a starting pitcher, if the Blue Jays were to acquire a starting pitcher, my sense is that they would definitely prefer someone who can be sent to the minors because they do have those six starters in the major leagues. They have those six starters in the major leagues. One of them who is not on the 40 man just yet. And we'll get to a little bit more on the offensive side from last night's game, including Dalton Varsho. But while we're on the topic of, Hey, the roster juggling and maintaining depth and things like that, the less sexy parts of the trade deadline and roster management, uh, the decision to not have Hyunjin Ryu activated this weekend against the angels. Now there are a couple things that could go into that lining up your rotation, the way you prefer for this 17 and 17 stretch, um, you know, making sure that he's a thousand percent where he needs to be. Uh, they've called it deloading, which is a hilarious, uh, term to, to use here, uh, as Hyunjin Ryu gets close to the majors. That was, I sorry to cut you off there, Blake. I'm pretty sure that that was their term. I am I'm like 10 percent scared that I invented that term and then and now have uh, have have spoken that one into the world. No but, man, um, after, I'm pretty sure that was there. I went through the load management season where we had to like quadruple check if they kept saying load management, and then I made a Jordan Lloyd typo one time, and then a load management day became a loadie because it was a typo of Jordan Lloyd. They're like, they're, they're, <laughs> they're definitely calling it deloading the sports science stuff is getting in there. I, I'm not, I'm not putting that on you, but so th that's the Jays explanation for what's happening next with Hyunjin Ryu. They have until August 3rd to make the um, decision on him, assuming everything continues to move in the right direction. I kind of thought that they would delay Ryu's debut or re-debut 
because of the 40-man consideration where, yes, eventually you're going to have to create a 40-man spot for him. That's going to require someone being DFA'd, someone being optioned, and all those things. But if you can, this close to the deadline, if Ryu was ready last week and could make two or three starts before the deadline, it's not a consideration. But this close to the deadline, that's an issue that maybe resolves itself by next Tuesday anyway. Maybe the way the trade deadline shakes out, activating Ryu one more series after the, the angel series allows you then to keep someone on the 40 man or keep someone in the organization that you maybe otherwise wouldn't have, if you were trying to do that this weekend, do you subscribe to that as part of the reason to delay Ryu here? Yeah, I, I do. I think, um, you know, when you look at the date by which he has to be activated is August the 3rd. And that's a product of when he started his rehab and, I just don't see that as being a coincidence either. I mean, that's probably some good advanced planning on the part of the Blue Jays to just set it. So, okay, we have until just after the trade deadline to get this guy active. And so, yeah, I think there are other factors. Of course, the health factor is a real one. He's coming back from a substantial injury. And at this rate, you know, he he had the surgery in June of two, in late June of 2022. So he's trending toward a 13-month recovery for a, an operation that typically is 12 to 15 months. So, you know, he is on the early side of things. Uh, he's in great shape. Uh, he's ready to roll, it seems. But giving him a few extra days is is reasonable just from a from a recovery standpoint. I mean, I think that that's, that's fair to say. But then there's the silver lining to it of, okay, we don't have to actually add him just yet. This gives us another another uh, few days to, to hold on to maybe one more player and, and allow them to, to um, sift through their decisions just a little bit longer. And I do think there's some validity too to the idea that they probably want to have Ryu benefit the other starters. And I think that's better if you pitch him Monday or Tuesday even, then that gives you that gives three starters an extra day's rest before their next appearance. I guess the the one drawback to that would be you're also juggling right now the fact that yes, it's the Angels this weekend. That's a team you're fighting off in the wild card chase. But you've got four pretty big games coming up against the Orioles, and then three against the Red Sox uh, before your schedule turns. Not not lighter, but uh, you, you know seven AL East games in a row or seven AL East games in a row. And I do wonder if there's an element of uh, trying to make sure you're the best parts of your rotation are, are pitching in that Baltimore series. That's something that uh, Chris Black posited uh, a little earlier in the show as well. Now, the other thing they have to juggle though, Ben, is you probably don't want Manoa Kikuchi Ryu all pitching on consecutive days, even if it does mean you get Bassett, Barrios, Gosman in against the Orioles. Um, how much do you think, obviously, look, if they go to a six-man rotation for this 17-day stretch or even, you know, the first two times through it, you're running the bullpen a man short, but how imperative is it in your mind to make sure there's some separation between the five and dive guys? You know, I don't, if they do run a six man rotation, which I think is a real possibility, I don't think they're doing it for more than like two turns. Right. Uh, it's not going to be, you know, it won't be a long term thing. So, so if they, if they have to uh, have three guys lined up who are, who are less likely to take the ball deep into the game, I actually think that's okay. It's not ideal. It's definitely not ideal. But if you do that twice, um, you know, back to back weeks, you know, you're just hoping that one of those guys can give you six and then, all right, if you're covering a, a lot of innings for two of those three, 
so be it. That's that's the position you find yourself in. But I, I think it's okay, um, even if it's not ideal. Okay. So the other consideration here is let let's play out a scenario where you know they decide, hey, Monday we want Hyunjin Ryu starting. They've they've changed their mind on this, or or we're incorrect about our trade deadline thinking here, or just the trade deadline plays out in a way that doesn't free up a forty man spot. When you look at that forty man roster. Um, does, does someone float to the top of the list in terms of that guy is at risk to you of losing their spot? I, I think on the 26 man, most people would point to Mitch white and be like, well, this guy's only pitched three times in July because they don't trust him in any situation. Hasn't pitched in a week here. Um, but there is an element of, you know, maintaining depth at certain positions and, and who may or may not have value. Do you have a lean on who you think might be at risk of losing a 40 man spot? Yeah, I mean it's um it is something that they're gonna they have to have that ranked internally, mm-hmm. um, without a doubt. Um, I, I do think that, you know, Mitch White, uh, when you look at the active roster, is it's fair to wonder about that for sure. Um I, I think Yasfer Zulueta is a guy who could be traded mm-hmm. off the forty man roster, to be honest with you. Um, I could see that for sure. Ernie Clement, um, I mean, yeah, you could DFA Ernie Clement, right? Like, yeah, that's not gonna you know, that's that um, that would be fine. You could DFA Nathan Lucas. Um, I, I, yeah. So I, I think those guys could be could be gone. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. Like this is speculation. I don't. You know, I'm not trying to start any wild rumors here. But I wouldn't be surprised if other teams have interest in Santiago Espinal and if he's traded. It wouldn't. It wouldn't stun me. Um, so you know, there's four names, and and that's all speculative. And I'm not trying to you know come for anyone's job when I say that, but. Yeah, I think Zulueta will draw interest, um, and I think that um, clearly Clement and Lucas would be on the edges of the forty man as well. Yeah, I think there are you know some guys there that you wouldn't love to lose for org depth wise, but some of those guys you just named are already losing playing time at AAA because there are just so many of them concentrated at that level and kind of have a, a similar profile. So um, that's that's one of those things that if the Jays are dealing with that. Well, that means reuse ready or they've acquired someone else. So that's uh, that's not all that surprising. I, I want to ask you one that you mentioned Espinal there um, in terms of guys who I, I know Ross Atkins said they would prefer not to subtract from the major league roster, but you only get 26 spots. Um, Jordan Luplo, uh, of course, could be sent back down. He still has uh, options remaining. Is Espinal the guy you think like if they were to deal off of the major league roster, the combination of hey, he still has some control, he's shown some ability, the Jays can't give him playing time. Is that the guy that maybe threads the needle for still having a little bit of value, but is a spot the Jays might be eager to upgrade? Yeah, I, I see that as a as as a possibility. Um, and you know, we saw Espinal start at short yesterday um, in place of Bo Bichette. And then you can almost sense like, okay, Bo Bichette wants to get back into the game. Um, John Schneider wants to give Bo a bit of a night off, but then also it's like you kind of need Bo's bat in there. This team is not as good without Bo Bichette. They kind of need him in there. So, you know, you, you end up getting Bo back in, and then it's like, okay, okay, they're back to their normal configuration. So, you know, this is a team that functionally, and, and you know, it's not ideal over the course of a year, but we're talking about two months of regular season baseball left. Functionally, how many how many days off is Bo, Bo Bichette going to have? Zero? You know, if you're... If you're Right, like one more max. Um, it's not going to be a lot. Like it's really not going to be a lot. So you don't really need a backup 
shortstop in the same way that most teams do. I know you have to have a, conting- a contingency plan in place and you need to have shortstops in your organization on your 40-man roster. But, you know, the the traditional backup shortstop role that you might have had, like let's say when the Blue Jays were last really good for Troy Tulowitzki, well, yeah, you need a backup shortstop <laughs> if Troy Tulowitzki's your guy because he might go down and, and miss time with a heel for like two, two weeks at any given point. With Bobachet, given his youth and performance and, and ability to stay on the field with the preparation he does, I, I think you can get a little bit more creative. And I just think... Yeah, I, I just won't be surprised if other teams have interest in Espinal. I've heard speculation on that front. Yeah, they that and that makes sense to me for for a couple of different reasons. So like you said, Bobachet has missed seven games over the last three seasons. That's uh that's it. Now was a guy that dealt with some some injury plague stuff on his way up. But yeah, he's been basically baseball's Iron Man the last uh, the last three years. Okay, Ben. So last night, let, let's pivot to the to the hitter side of things on the trade front, and maybe last night. It shouldn't because it's just one game and just one moment. It shouldn't really change anyone's opinion. Um, but are you a believer in what I'm going to call the big exhale where Dalton Varsho has had such a rough 25 games or so. He has, you know, like a 360 OPS over the last 25 games coming into last night, has a couple poor plate appearances last night, but then comes through in that moment with a line drive two run double to put the Jays ahead for good in extra innings. Um, when, when you, and I know you, you have, a sense of what these guys are like as people as well given the degree to which it seemed Dalton Varsho had been pressing do you think last night can be you know uh, uh something that changes things for Dalton Varsho or are we being a little too hopeful thinking that way well um it was a great first step <laughs> that is for sure and I think that you know in talking to him after the game you know we all saw the swing we all saw that ball skip under Jason Hayward's glove and and the reaction from the teammates and from Dalton Varsho was obviously a great moment. And I asked him what the feeling was for him afterwards. And he, he acknowledged like, hey, it has been a really tough month um, for for him. Um, of course, he's not really hitting. And, um, you know, we've, we've seen uh, the results. Way too many strikeouts. Maybe a hole in a swing up and in on fastballs um, for the time being. So it has been a grind for Dalton Varsho. Um, and he was really relieved and John Schneider was really happy on his behalf. And so were his teammates and all that's good to see. Now, I, I still am not totally convinced these, these out of the woods, so to speak, we'll see. And I, I think that adding a complimentary right-handed bat is still a must for the Blue Jays. And, uh, you know, in talking, getting a sense from, from conversations around the game, I really do get the sense that there are some bats out there that they could, that they could look to add in that complimentary type role. Um, that other teams are interested as well. I mean, the Phillies look like a team that'll probably be in that same market, um, but the Blue Jays need to be trying to add um, to, to complement their outfield to find ways in case, you know, not necessarily with respect to Varsho, but if Kiermaier, um, you know, has a, has a back issue flare up again, if Springer, who has been so healthy this year, ends up needing to miss a couple weeks, you don't want Jordan Luplo to be the guy that you're depending on. So, for all the reasons that we've been discussing for weeks, if not months now, they still need to be going out there and other teams expect the Blue Jays to be busy in that department and other teams expect the Blue Jays to to add um, a uh, a hitter at the trade deadline. We'll see what caliber of hitter that is, but 
in the meantime, they definitely need Dalton Varsha. Yeah, the hard part, you mentioned the Phillies being in, in the market for some of the same guys. I, I look at that Dodgers roster we saw last night, and that's a team that I think could use a, another right-handed outfield bat as well. Might not be their their biggest need, given they're starting guys like Emma Chien and, and Michael Grove right now, and they don't really have a, a backup catcher, so to speak, with, with Austin Barnes falling off the way he has. Um, but yeah, that's another team that, that could be shopping in the same aisle as you, which is always worrisome because the Dodgers have more money than God and also like the best system in baseball, which is, uh, you know, fascinating to, to look at. Um, ben, are we at the point now where you, you want to kick around some, some potential names? Yeah, of course. I, I've been ready to kick around names for a long time. I know you have two Blake. So what yes. do you got? Yeah. So I, I know you're Mr. MLB trade rumors in the background. So I, I got, 53 names in response when I tweeted out yesterday, hey, who are some guys you'd like the Blue Jays uh, to target? I have created some spreadsheets as as I do that kind of sorts by a, a few different categories and has contract details now. Uh, each player's, you know, team's closeness to the playoffs uh, where, uh, you know, I got a lot of Padres suggested. And look, I'll be honest. I don't think you're shopping for Padres right now. I, I just think they're, they're still too close at six games out for a team that, that that's that heavily leveraged. Uh, but some of these teams are pretty interesting. So Ben, before we get into some specific names, I'm curious as to when you're, when you start looking at these, are you, what is your process? Are you clicking on the bad teams and then looking through the roster? Are you hitting up a, a fan graphs or a baseball reference query and looking for, Hey, these are the two stats that I care most about for a reliever or a hitter, what is your process to start filtering down a name for a, a list from, I don't know, how many guys are there in baseball, like, like 900 guys in baseball to a more reasonable, say, 75 or so? Yeah, exactly. Um, for me, a lot of it is going to start with, if I'm watching a game, because I, I like to watch as many non-Jays games as I can, um, I think it's really useful um, just because sometimes, you know, if you're, if I'm watching another team for a while, then I'm like, oh yeah, these, this team is not very good. And then you watch the Blue Jays and you're like, yeah, like they have their problems, but they're actually pretty good. You know, so I think it's kind of, kind of useful um, because otherwise it can be so easy to get so, so negative about the Blue Jays. And then it's like, no, that they're actually like, they're a pretty good team. Like they're <laughs> a lot better than the pirates or the angels or the rockies or you know so many of these ball clubs but in any case the blue jays need help so no, you know not saying otherwise they definitely need help need to go out and get some some upgrades so to me sometimes it starts with like watching you know like let's say it's a, a pirates game and you see carlos santana and you're like okay switch hitter yep veteran bat yep but positionally doesn't fit and then it's like, no. And then I'm like watching Andrew McCutcheon. I'm like, oh, he can still run a little bit. And then, of course, like you want to you want to look. Our, our eyes can deceive us in the course of a small game. So, you know, I look at um, I, I do click on the on the links on the losing teams on a baseball reference, just really simply to get something going that way and see, um, you know, who they have, who's performing well. Um, and I kind of like to start with like OPS is who's performing well. And then I go to baseball savant and see, you know, is that sustainable? Are they striking out 33% of the time? Or is their barrel rate, you know, you know, completely, you know, abysmally low. Um, so I just chip away at it that way. It's not super scientific, but, um, it, it, it sort of works, I guess. So if you're going, uh, if you're sort descending by OPS and then clicking on the baseball savant pages, you are not in on Tim Anderson. I take it. I am out. I am out on Tim Anderson. Here's the thing with Tim Anderson. Like, he's not hitting for power at all. So why why am I acquiring anyone 
who doesn't hit for power unless they are an absolutely like stellar defender. But as I understand it, Tim Anderson's played a little second base. Like, is the shoulder fully healthy? You, are you going to ask that guy to be a role player? I'm way out on Tim Anderson. Yeah, that's a, it's a tough one. And, you know, the the thing you mentioned about uh, how would he handle being a role player? That's the kind of great unknown for the exercise that, that we're doing here and this week. You know, logically to me, it's like, yeah, we're going to use you only in really good situations. You're going to be a part of a winning team. And that maybe rehabs your value more than 100 plate appearances of getting to, I don't know, do whatever on the south side. Um, but, yeah, it's an expensive one financially, even with only a $1 million buyout next year. Let, let's stay with the the right-handed hitter types um if you are again looking at some of the the stack cast stuff and certainly the ops numbers a name that is maybe of interest to you and a familiar one and i think it was you that joked the jays are already kind of paying part of the salary anyway would a randall gritchick reunion interest you at all yeah I, i it would it would um i don't think it's the most exciting fit um but look Randall Gritchuk is a better baseball player than Jordan Luplo. I, I believe that. And the numbers would bear that out. So end of the day, like if you get to three or no, the deadline six Eastern, if you get to five fifty five on the trade deadline and you got Jordan Luplo on your roster and Randall Gritchuk's on the Colorado Rockies, phone them, make a deal because he's better. Right. So like at a certain point you do it. I, I don't think that's where you start your search. Um, but you know, you got to be open-minded. And uh, I, I did, I have asked around about this one a little bit. I, I haven't gotten the sense that it's particularly likely, uh, but um, you never say never because as long as he's better than one guy you have on your roster, you got to keep an open mind. Someone who is certainly uh, better than guys on this roster, but there are questions about health. Um, and, and there's also, uh, you know, a bit of a, a contractual element with it, with a couple team options with, with rolling buyouts, but as the white Sox continue to crater, and we just did the Tim Anderson thing, I probably should have transitioned that way. Uh, Aloy Jimenez is a name that obviously the, the production is there. The power is there when he can stay on the field, the white Sox are out of it. Um, he's owed 13.8 million next year and, and then has team options for 2025 and 2026 with, with minimal ish bios. He's still only 26. Also, is, is that a name that interests you at all? Or is that, you know, too much term and too much injury uncertainty? I'd be fine with that. If I was the Jays, um, yeah, I'd be fine with that. I think you're still looking at a guy who is producing. He's got an OPS around 800. Um, so, you know, of course, you want to do your diligence on health and, and background and, and you know, see which way he's trending. I have not done that myself. Um, but I, I think that, you know, off the top of the head, you're, you're looking at someone who's consistently been a well above average major league hitter. That's kind of what the Jays really could use right now. And if you put a healthy Eloy Jimenez in the middle of a Blue Jays lineup. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty interesting. I I'm just, I'm not sure if the White Sox would want to do that. I, I don't have a clue what the White Sox want to do because they never operate within what we think is they're, they're going to do and, you know, things underperform and then they act irrationally. Um, so this is like, you know, doing your Ecom 101 class where everything has this big assumption that everyone's a rational actor and then you get into the trade deadline. It's like, well, that's not true. Um, so we'll yeah. see. We'll see what they do. Uh, another Injury question mark one um, and someone who's had a down year. So consider this like a split between Tim Anderson and and Aloy Jimenez. If you look over to Oakland, Ramon Laureano is, um, you know, on a rehab assignment right now. So there's some risk there. He has not had a good season at the plate, but he's hit lefties reasonably well. Um, He has a, a contract that 
ends after this season, but but he's ARB eligible. So if things work out, you can take him to the arbitration process and see how that plays out. And obviously a guy who, you know, maybe you're not asking him to play any center field, but has a big arm in the corners. Is Loriano uh, someone, you know, where, where would you put him relative to, say, a Grichuk or an Aloy Jimenez? To me, he's definitely in the same category as Grichuk and ahead of Grichuk. Um, probably gives you a bit more defense than Randall Grichuk um, and comparable offense. I, I think that, you know, Loriano would be a really nice pickup. And I know the numbers haven't been there, but he's a guy who you could imagine making big plays defensively, even offensively. Um, he has the ability to steal a base too. Um, I think that he's a fourth outfielder on a good team. Um, which the Blue Jays are. So, yeah, I mean, if he's the complement to a Kiermaier when Kiermaier needs a day off, when Varsho comes out of the game um, and you want someone to come in, he he would be fully capable of that. So I think he's in a slightly different category than Eloy Jimenez because Jimenez is probably more in the Tommy Pham category of, like, he's a DH um, and you're just getting the bat. But with Loriano, he actually can contribute some defensive value, I think, which would have some appeal. Yeah, I think, I think so. And, you know, I, obviously I, I think of the arm first laser Ramon and all that stuff. Um, this is, so this is aiming way too high there. I'm sure you're going to say no to this one. They're currently in a playoff spot, but the Miami Marlins have been so bad over the last couple of weeks. I know Kim Ng has spoken openly about like, Hey, we're not going to sell We're we're going to ride this thing out and maybe even add um, Jorge Soler would be the, the high watermark in terms of guys who mash lefties. You could pick up um, Miami in general. Let's say they continue on this skid. Is there anyone there that you could see as a, as a reasonable pluck? Wow. The sharks are circling in the water yeah. led by Blake Murphy. Yeah. That is, you know, this is, this is great. Um, yeah, I think um, Solaire would be great. I mean, yeah. The asking price massive. would be astronomical. He's only owed $9 million next year, too. Yeah, and, and again, DH, he's kind of the, he's like the top of that category where you have Eloy Jimenez and Tommy Pham, and like you're just talking about a righty masher um, and a guy who can just hit fifth and hit bombs. And like, that's, that's great. Um, I just don't see, like if you're the Marlins... And you are in this position right now where the Mets are having an uncharacteristic, the Mets, you know, the big, big spenders in baseball having this uncharacteristically bad year and you're in second place. You have a chance to push for a wild card and your main competition is like Cincinnati and Arizona. If you're the Marlins, to me, you got to go for it. You got to see if you can get in and just turn in some of that wild card magic that they've had before in their franchise because it's not every year that the Phillies and the Mets are going to underperform like this. So I just don't see Solaire becoming available. But, you know, in, in talking to teams in the last couple of days here, like I've, I've gotten the sense that even though we're a week out from the deadline right now, a lot of teams are still making up their minds mm-hmm. and teams are still telling other teams like, look, we don't know yet. We're not sure. We're, we're still kind of picking our lane. And keep in mind, too, that t- two of those teams that are maybe the most, um, you know, on the fence right now, are San Diego and Seattle. And Jerry DePoto and A.J. Preller, the GMs of those teams, are typically two of the guys who drive this action. But because the Padres and Mariners are kind of, you know, not necessarily having these great years, they're kind of stuck in the middle, that means that those two teams have not been driving the action. But, of course, with a 1-5 and five or a 5-1, and one, 
in either direction, that could really shift. So teams are still expecting some more sellers to emerge. It just hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and look, it maybe it all stays as convoluted and tight as it is. Like the NL wildcard right now, five teams are separated by one game total. That's it for the three wildcard spots. And then even if Cincinnati went on a run, Milwaukee would fall right back into that. It's crazy close. And I think certainly on paper, the Padres are better than all of those teams. So why wouldn't they uh, believe the, the, the AL is, you know, I think a little more straightforward just in that the teams that Seattle are chasing there, there are a couple more of them and they're better. Um, But yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating week or so for some of those teams. It's a a terrific week to be out of town scoreboard watching. So also not a a bad time for the Jays to have a 10 PM start. Uh, Jays have that 10 PM start tonight. It's Chris Bassett against Julio Arias. Um, Ben, Thanks for making the time out early in the morning out on the West Coast and and hope part two at Chavez Ravine is as enjoyable for you as last night was. Yeah, hoping for the same. It should be um, should be a fun one. We'll see if more uh, extra innings await or or what's uh, what's in store, but it should be fun um, and definitely always enjoy talking uh, some trades with you, Blake. And only about 45 names left on that spreadsheet to go through. So I will uh, I'll just text the rest of you and read them on air in the next segment. Okay. Perfect. Just two two full rosters worth, right? Yes. That's, that should be enough. Nice yeah, and easy. Uh, ben Nicholson-Smith, uh, MLB editor at sportsnet.ca. He'll be all over the deadline stuff uh, over this next week. I'm sure he'll join us again early next week to help us. You know, I, I'd imagine Monday and Tuesday shows there are baseball games happening, but we're going to be full bore deadline, deadline, deadline. We're also going to have extended hours on the deadline, by the way. Right now, though, we're going to take a break. Uh, When we come back, we'll talk to Fabian Ardaya of The Athletic. He covers the Dodgers there. The Dodgers who are shopping in some of the same aisles as the Toronto Blue Jays at the trade deadline. Shopping from a position of great strength, though, atop the NL West. We'll also tee up the rest of this series. Uh, Fabian's next as Jay Stock Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jays win 6-3 and 11 last night. If you're looking ahead to tonight, Chris Bassett, Julio Urias, uh, if you are looking for something to do before the game starts at 10 p.m. Eastern, uh, Chad Green is throwing an inning for Dunedin tonight, his second rehab assignment as he works his way back. That is probably not the headline item you're thinking of right now. Uh, It's deadline time. It's also time for game two of what should be a really fun series down in L.A. Joining us now to help us break down the Dodgers side, Fabian Ardaya of The Athletic. First of all, man, how are you feeling about Messi in Miami? I know you're a big Messi guy. I know the the whole Miami situation is, you know, something MLS fans are, are big on, American fans are big on. But you as a longtime Messi guy, how are you feeling about it at all? I'm ecstatic. I mean, the game the other night was great. The goal the other night was great. Uh, it's It's been a great uh, calendar year. It's been a great 12 months uh, just to be following Messi. Uh, all right. Uh, glad you're doing okay with it. Glad you're you're finding the positives in it. And yeah, certainly a, a reason to tune in uh, to some MLS stuff around Women's World Cup right now. And of course, baseball. Uh, Fabian, it is trade deadline time and the Dodgers 
get to operate from a position of strength sitting atop the NL West right now. They've managed to survive some injury troubles, but teams are lurking. You can never be too confident. This is a Dodgers team that knows well that making the playoffs is one thing and then getting all the way to the World Series and winning one is another. Um, Where are the Dodgers right now in terms of their level of uh, aggression? And we we know they're usually pretty aggressive, but um, even a, a level of I won't say desperation, but but how urgent are the Dodgers operating this next week uh, to make sure that this version of the team is World Series ready? Yeah, I think it's fair to say the Dodgers have been aggressive in years past. I mean, you can't acquire some of the names that they have at the deadline, be it Scherzer, Trey Turner, Hugh Darvish, Manny Machado, without being aggressive. But I think that was more opportunistic, sort of like waiting for the right moment, right value to sort of pop up and sort of maximizing that. They're not necessarily operating in that position this year. I think mean, they're in a position where they kind of have to make some moves. They kind of have to make some moves just to adjust this roster because the holes on this roster are a lot more prominent than uh, most years. I mean, they really need starting pitching. Uh, their bullpen has solidified some, but they probably could use another arm. They could use a right, another right-handed uh, outfield bat. Uh, they could probably use some help, maybe possibly a backup catcher. But the pitching especially has been – more of a concern than maybe any year they've had, just considering the fact that they have three rookies in their rotation right now while Clay Kershaw's out, and they still don't really have a defined one, two, three going into a postseason. Yeah, that's it's a, it's a fascinating spot. You mentioned some of the exact same things the Blue Jays could be shopping for here. The Dodgers being able to operate and again, I'll use the term operate from a position of strength, not just because of where they sit in the standings, but they have this fascinating ability to, for over a decade now, be in win-now mode, like you said, being aggressive and opportunistic. But also they have, if not the best system in baseball, one of the top three to five systems in baseball. How, and this is maybe uh, too big of a, you know, baseball philosophical, but how have they been able to kind of twin track it like that, where they're constantly in win-now mode, yet the depth of their system never seems to be in question. There always seems to be something more the Dodgers could deal from. Yeah, it's something more like Andrew Friedman has kind of said, like the system's kind of built against stuff like that, just considering some of the penalties they've had to face the last couple of years. Last two years, their draft pick has been pushed back 10 picks. Uh, they've been limited in the international market at times just because of how well they've done, how much they've spent. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's made it more difficult. Uh, their scouting staff is really robust. Their player development staff is really robust. Um, a lot of the, of the sort of edges, the first mover edges, they probably had early on during this front office's tenure are probably not as big as they were in years past, but they still have a knack for knowing what they can do really well. And while they don't necessarily have the top end starting pitching on the big league roster right now, they have a lot of really interesting young controlled arms that they can move at the deadline. Like the young, interesting position players that they tried integrating to the big league roster this year. Uh, no one's really stood out as a really star-level contributor, but they've gotten some contributions out of James Outman. Uh, Miguel Vargas struggled and is back down the minors, but still is someone they're pretty high on. Like They have a lot of guys at a lot of different spots throughout their system. The depth is probably the biggest strength of this system right now. When it comes to what the moves could be at the deadline, and may- maybe this answer is too obvious to even ask, but the fact that we are here in 2023 seeing Mookie Betts play second base and shortstop more than he's ever played in his major league career. That ability to have your best player 
move around and fill a couple different spots for you. Sure. His defensive value might be different in center versus right versus shortstop versus second, but that flexibility, you know, we usually talk about flexibility and positional versatility with a guy like Chris Taylor, maybe even on the J side Whit Merrifield, who's still an everyday guy, but bounces around to have arguably your best player also be able to plug into a couple spots. How many options does that open up for Friedman? Yeah, I mean, it's completely changed how they're kind of approaching this deadline. I think if you kind of ask the club going into the season, especially after Gavin Lux went down, like what their biggest target would be at the deadline, they probably would say shortstop. Uh, just because they probably had, it originally acquired Mariel Rojas to kind of bounce around, be a utility guy throughout the infield. Uh, now they're in a position where obviously Chris Taylor can play over there, but he's not at full strength health wise. But if Mookie Betts is able to play the middle infield the way he has, all of a sudden, you're shopping more for another outfield bat, which is a lot cheaper to acquire than a middle infielder or a shortstop would be. Certainly, and as the you know, as we look at the the targets for the Toronto Blue Jays here, they had they're set up similarly where you could yeah you could add a second baseman and have Whit Merrifield play left field a little bit more, but it might just be more straightforward to add an outfielder who who's you know a little less expensive because there are more of them. Um, Fabian, I, I'm curious as you look at the deadline and potential players available. Does anyone stand out to you as, you know, a a nice target that's not going to cost the entire farm system? And this can be Dodger specific or just in general, you as a, as a baseball guy, what names have kind of, you know, been at at front of mind for you this last little bit? Yeah. I'm curious to see what Lucas Giolito's market looks like. He's a LA guy. Obviously he's that guy who's kind of shown that kind of upside that he can potentially be a real contributor to postseason rotation and he's having a nice year but i'm not sure how much value he'll be able to get as a rental but that, i'm really curious to see what his market's like especially if he's potentially the best arm available in the market uh the three names that keep i kept hearing about for the dodgers specifically were uh tommy fan Marcana, and kike hernandez obviously the dodgers are really familiar with kike hernandez he's not having a great year uh but he is someone who Historically, as hit lefties, he kind of fits exactly what the Dodgers are looking for. Someone who can probably have some versatility to play the infield if you need to, has the outfield versatility. Uh, obviously, Tommy Pham is having a great year with the Mets, and Mark Canna is someone who historically has hit lefties really well as well. Um, and, and part of that, you know, wanting guys to to hit the lefty, obviously when you are in a World Series race, everyone has to, you know, suck it up and do what's best for the team. It, are they at a point now basically where they, they just don't want Jason Hayward facing facing lefties and certainly not starting against them? Yeah, I mean, that's been kind of the thing all year. I think he has had, I think, less than, fewer than 20 play appearances against lefties all season. And it's worked. Like, it, this is sort of, an alignment that has gotten the best out of Jason Hayward, gotten the best out of David Peralta. Their abilities essentially just lines, uh, line change, just depending on who the starting pitcher is. And that's sort of how the Dodgers have gone about the season. They haven't necessarily completed the versus left type of uh, alignment just because they've kind of bounced between options, uh, which is why they can use another right-handed bat. But the other side of that platoon where it gets righties, if there are three left-handed hitting outfielders out there, you have Mookie Betts at second base. That might be the best offensive alignment the Dodgers have. 
Yeah, and you, you mentioned they've they've mostly kept Hayward away from it, and I was pretty surprised. Even so, I guess it's a tough spot when the Jays bring in Henesis Cabrera in the sixth, and, and you maybe don't want to take uh, Hayward out then because the Jays don't have a lot of lefties in the pen. But yeah, he's now 0 for 13 against uh, against lefties on the year with, with a pair of walks, so a tough one there. Um, Julio Arias is going to take the hill tonight for the Dodgers in Game Two of the series against the Blue Jays. Where are the Dodgers at in terms of where he slots in for them? Because he was third in Cy Young voting yet last year in the National League. We're a little familiar with guys who came third in the Cy Young voting, uh, not having great follow-up seasons here in Toronto with Alec Manoa. Um, Urias going from leading the league in ERA with a 216 mark last year to want an ERA north of five right now. Are, are they confident he can rediscover some of that 2022 form in time? Yeah, they feel like they're pretty confident because there's been like flashes of it. Uh, that first start out of the break uh, against the Mets, he allowed a pull to the first battery phase and Brandon Nemo didn't allow him to hit the rest of the way the next six innings. Like there are flashes of it with Julio Diaz. It's just he hasn't been consistent this year, uh, whether it be mechanically just trying to get his footing. The last start he had was the most runs he ever allowed in his outing. Obviously, there's some stuff that was uh, some complicating factors in that start, just considering that it was kind of wet, muggy, like he wasn't able to get much of a grip from baseball, but like those are all things we kind of have to you know, have to pitch for, through to get in October, and he's October tested. He's someone who's going to be in their postseason rotation, but they really need him uh, to get, if they want to get to the World Series, they need him to sort of be more of the pitcher that they were that he was the last couple of years. All right, got to ask you before I let you go here because this is the the story right now and he's visiting here uh, this weekend. Shohei Otani, we, we haven't heard a ton about the Dodgers being a potential trade destination for him, but what is your sense, and I'm not, sorry, not asking you to report here, but just like, um, you know, in general, the idea of Otani as a free agent, the idea of the Dodgers as a destination, does that make some sense to you? If not at the deadline, like if we're, if we're redoing the Shohei sweepstakes this winter instead of, this week, um, Shohei and the Dodgers, does that feel like any kind of a fit to you? Yeah, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. And I think it makes a lot of sense for the Dodgers to really be heavily in that mix. Uh, I mean, they they almost signed him out of high school as just a pitcher. They really pushed after him when he was free agent the first time. I think there's some feeling within the Dodgers that if, if the Universal DH were around back then, that maybe he would have been a Dodger. That they are pushing heavily for him this winter. Uh, that is going to be something they. This is an interest that spanned multiple front offices. What they are really interested in him. So he's someone that they're going to go after in free agency. I'm sure that if they get the available via trade, they'll at least make a phone call. Obviously, it's a little bit difficult. I'm not sure Artie Moreno, the owner of the Angels, would want to trade within the same city. Uh, but so yeah, I, I, they're definitely going to be in the mix for a time. Now, are they going to enlist you as well and be like, look, hey, here's another guy who went from the Angels to the Dodgers and it's worked out pretty well for him? I don't know how compelling of a pitch that would be. <laughs> well, uh, the the work speaks for itself, at least, if Shohei's been uh, reading along. Uh, Fabian, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Of course, no problem. Fabian Ardaya of The Athletic uh, covers the Dodgers. They're formerly covered the Angels uh, for the athletic as well. So if anyone knows how to make that transition, maybe you can help uh, Shohei out. If that comes to pass, Chris Bassett, Julio Urias tonight at 10 PM, uh, Blair and Barker in their normal five to seven slot. Show Ali will have you for a pregame as well as Jay's talk late night postgame show Ali Jay's talk after dark uh, for that one. Uh, Gunning and McKee are coming up next before we do that. A little bit of a note 
Jeff Passan of ESPN, despite having a broken back right now, still doing uh, a great deal of reporting over at ESPN ahead of the deadline. I'm not going to read out the entire article. You should go over to ESPN and check it out. But two important notes as it pertains to the Toronto Blue Jays that I'll pass on here. The first is that, according to Jeff's sources, the Blue Jays have not done enough to convince ownership to open up the coffers, leaving the Blue Jays precisely where they've been all season, the muddled middle. That's an exact quote from, from Passan. However, when he asks around about where Otani could end up if he's moved, the Jays are among the three teams Passan's been hearing most often, along with Baltimore and Tampa Bay. Uh, the Jays having a thinner farm system there, maybe making a deal harder. But hey, maybe a willingness to take on a rental without assurances about the future. Uh, who knows what that market would look like? I just wanted to end the show, leaving you with a little note of, hey, it could happen. Any percentage chance greater than zero is worth dreaming on. And honestly, take whatever you want from the system. I do not care. This is a Blue Jays team that is uh, close to being where they need to be, but not where they need to be. You could acquire the greatest player probably any of us will ever see. And he helps you with the rotation. He helps you with the lineup. He helps you everywhere. He's Shohei Otani. He's going to win. Assuming he doesn't get traded to the National League, he's going to win another MVP. Um, that would be very, very fun to dream on. And I'm not exaggerating. You take whatever you want from the system. You take the entire city of Buffalo, entire city of New Hampshire, whatever, uh, for two months of Shohei Otani here. Um, doesn't seem particularly likely. If you're not uh, hungry for it uh, at the price tag, it's going to cost just yet. Just wait until Friday when you get to see him pitch against the Toronto Blue Jays and hit against the Toronto Blue Jays uh, should be a blast. Again, it's Bassett Urias tonight. It's Blair and Barker five to seven show Ali pre and post game gunning McKee coming up next. Jays talk plus back with you 10 a.m. Tomorrow we'll break down this game. We'll continue to talk trade deadline stuff. Uh, thanks to Chris Black, Ben Nicholson, Smith, Levi Weaver, Fabian Ardaya. Uh, thanks to Jeff and Lance behind the glass and Frank that's who else is back I can't see who the third person behind the glass is right now thanks everyone Jay's Talk Plus back tomorrow on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360